Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am okay. How are you? Uh, it's been a week. It's been a week. A very dear friend and mentor of mine passed away this week. And I, yeah, it's it, it's hard for something like this to happen and for it not to uh, impact you quite a bit or impact me. And it has. So, yeah, it's it's been a week. Well, that, that, that friend and mentor is... Obviously, uh, Professor Clayton Christensen, who, uh, you know, I, you know I, I think what we'll do is I, I'm going to sort of start and set this up, but I, I want most of this podcast, I think, actually to be from your perspective and your view, because you sort of knew him in a way that few of us listening did, you know, by virtue of, you know, you obviously you, you not just took his class, but also co-wrote a book with him, How Will You Measure Your Life, which is a particularly sort of meaningful book on the in the context of, of someone's death. Whereas, you know, for me, it was it was much more of a, a different relationship in that there wasn't one. Yet, it felt like there was certainly someone I looked up to, someone that really helped make business school make sense to me, for, for me from sort of a personal perspective, and certainly was a massive influence on strategy generally and, and, and you know, this, this podcast specifically. I think we've told the story that the entire reason that this podcast got started, what got it off the ground, was I wrote an article uh, at the beginning of Shashakari entitled What Clay Christensen Got Wrong. <laughs> and uh, uh, you did not like that article, uh, <laughs> or you did not like the title in particular. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let's get coffee and talk about it. And then we were talking about it. I said, well, instead of having this discussion over coffee, we should have this discussion as a podcast. Mm. And I would like to think that it is a discussion that is is still ongoing. I think it was just last week we talked about, or not last week, but last episode, we talked about disruption and mm. whether it applied or did not apply in a particular case. And I don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. Yeah. Just from a purely professional perspective, he's just like his thinking, his ideas have had such an impact uh, inside the business world, inside of how companies operate, inside how executives think about things. It's it's hard to overstate. Well, particularly in the tech industry, because I think the the bit about disruption that that people forget about is, and you've made this example on the podcast of Best Western is not going to disrupt, you know, the Ritz-Carlton or, yeah, or Four exactly. Seasons, right? Because if they wanted to actually deliver a competitive product, they would quickly end up being just as expensive as the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and so that's not a dis- – being cheap is not being disruptive. What is disruptive is leveraging technological change to fundamentally like change the cost structure of what can be delivered and the needs that can be met. And so the true disruptor to the Four Seasons is Airbnb, mm-hmm. uh, not because because it's competing on a different vector that is unlocked by technological change. In this case, you know, sort of the commoditization of trust, which we've we've talked about. Mm. And, and this idea that you don't need the brand name for people to, you know, lay their heads down to rest in your location, but you, you, now you can compete on different vectors, whether that be, you know, having a kitchen or, or a different location or a yard or, or whatever it might be. And now you actually are competing with the Four Seasons on a completely different vector in a way that they can't respond because they're sort of locked in into the way they do it. And, and but, but, but th- th- that piece, that piece about there must be something fundamentally different uh, at the core of the business model that makes it yeah. asymmetric 
competition. And and that is again, it's technological. Like no, technology does not necessarily mean like high, traditional high tech. The mini mill example was not about high tech per se, or lots of the other examples that that Professor Christensen had, but. Where are most of the technological changes? They're, they are in the tech industry. And, and I think, you know, what was so powerful about the innovator's dilemma when it came out in 1997, I think the original article was in 1994. You know, and this is probably the case with the best sort of theories. It sort of takes something that people had a sense of and an intuition around and it sort of puts it down on paper in black and white in a way, ah, that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. I, I, Quakerson did invent disruption. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of he uncovered something that was going on and was reproducible and consistent across multiple domains. And then going forward, did it become more of a playbook? Absolutely. And, you know, that's the tech industry's, you know, thoughts about disruption has always been, you know, for, it's interesting because Professor Christian was mostly focused on sort of established companies, established managers, as you would think someone that is a business school professor at, 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 H, at HBS. But for Silicon Valley, it's like, oh, this is a playbook because we are all about the technological change. And this is how we can actually leverage it and apply it to take over different sort of industries. There are many reasons why his class was popular, but I think one of them was he had a very strong focus on driving to causality. It wasn't enough that things were correlated. And uh, he had a uh, his career as an academic predating that he was in industry. He worked as a management consultant. He also worked as the CEO of a company. And I think because he came at it with that lens, it was like, it's not enough just to create correlative research where, oh, maybe there's a relationship. He's like, no, managers need to act. And for them to act, they need to know cause and effect. If I do this, then this will happen. And that's what's so powerful about the theory is it drives at the causal mechanism. So, you understand what's going on. You understand the behaviors of the various people. You understand if you're a startup, how to attack an incumbent. If you're an incumbent, there's a prescription for how you stave off disruption. It's very causal and it's very pragmatic. It's like action-oriented. Right. But at the same time, what was always so striking to me about about disruption and was so elegant about it was, in some respects, it's it's sort of inevitability. Mm-hmm. And what was so powerful about it is the fundamental insight at, at sort of core is managers doing the right thing will lead their companies to a bad to place. Fail. Yeah. Right. And particularly the, the initial insight, the innovators dilemma, obviously the innovators solution got into different aspects and areas of modularity and integration, which is what that was actually what I was attacking uh, much more in the case of that original article. That was much more of an attack on the innovator's solution as opposed to the innovator's dilemma. And, and and I think it's interesting because in some respects, the sort of modularity and integration argument, that's more where an incumbent can respond. They can maybe transform their initial sort of uh, innovation into being more modular and things on those lines. Mm-hmm. But like true innovation, where there's a technological change that enables a new way to serve previously underserved customers and that can improve on a vector that you just you can't it's not just that you you don't see it it's that you're incapable of responding because your cost structure is such your your income stream is such your culture is such that you're locked into a way of viewing the world that that you're incapable of responding and this is why you know we talked about this uh, a few times on, on the podcast why is it that startups don't just take on like straggling companies they take on powerful, strong companies head on and win. Why? Because when you're a startup, you get to 
form everything about your company around a particular view of the world that is new to the world mm. and, and you're you're aligned with that whereas the old powerful company was built around a different view of the world that got them to where they are but you're kind of locked in the curse of culture you're sort of lo- it's not just culture it's also it's, yeah. it's also incentives it, yeah, yeah it's, your business it's model. all of the things it, you've ossified well you haven't even ossified if you're in the view you're at you're super flexible when you're growing and getting big you're building that awesome you're building walls yes. around you that aren't visible until you need to shift and Correct. then you're like whoa i'm in a straitjacket i didn't even realize it Right. I mean, to be effective in an environment, you need to start to adapt to the environment. But as you adapt to the environment and evolve and build into that environment and become a big organism or organization, that by definition means that if the environment starts to shift, it's going to be much harder for you to adapt to a new environment than than something that just springs up and, and is created from scratch to meet the needs of this new environment. And it's funny, every time at, at business school, everyone's like, oh, you don't want to go up against the incumbents. They have all these resources. They have all these things that can be brought to bear and crush you and it's like ah uh, it's actually counterintuitive like if if the environment has shifted or you can see some way of orthogonally competing the more resources they have actually suggests you're more likely to be successful in going up against them it's so true it's so true like and the companies that do pivot they pivot from a place of weakness right mm. like like apple pivots when they're desperate you know mm. microsoft pivots when they lost mobile and because when you are when you are crushing it you're less capable of moving an analogy that just sort of occurred to me i'm not sure if this has been used before but it's like when when you're a new company and you're figuring out where to go it's like you're you're first you're walking then you're riding a bike then yes. you're driving a car and eventually you build like a high speed rail like right? you're like a bullet train and you are so efficient and you can move so much so Precise. many resources so quickly in in a direction but what happens is the moment this bullet train is going to new york city and suddenly the opportunities in washington dc the way you're so conditioned, all you can do at best is build like a new high-speed rail track to Washington, D.C., which takes so much money and takes years and resources. And meanwhile, someone is on foot and they're they're actually walking in the right direction. Then they're building their own bicycle and then they're building their own, their own car and they're, and they're building new tracks in a new direction because they're free to do so. And that freedom is actually more valuable than all of the resources and, and efficiency that the incumbent has. And, and then you, it ends up being a race, right? Can they actually redevelop this new approach before the the the, the new entry gets to scale? And, and and usually the new entry gets to scale first, and, and it's over. To some extent, what you're describing is Trumpeter's work on creative destruction, which predates Clay by quite a bit. But the fact that it doesn't just work at a macro level, it understands the micro level of the incentives, which is something that I've even got more acutely aware of since we've been doing this podcast and you've pushed me on. It's like the the manager thinks about serving the best customers. The manager thinks about delivering the numbers. And when a, a new entrant comes along, they come in in a way that the manager can't view it from a blank slate they view it from the lens of sitting on top of the pile of cash and the gross margins they already have. And it makes that opportunity look so unattractive. And yet to a startup who's sitting from nothing, any margins and any revenue looks attractive. And 
and the process begins. Uh, the startup sees an attractive opportunity. The incumbent sees this thing that's just going to ruin their existing business. Right. And their shareholders revolt. They can't do it. Right. And, and like that's yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And the and it's it's interesting because when I remember reading the HBO article that was the the root of the American dilemma in, in business school and like I came at business school from a perspective of. You know, for me, it was pure utilitarian. It was the shortest, fastest route to legitimacy in the U.S. job market for a English teacher in Taiwan that wanted to work in the tech industry. Mm. Even though I grew up, you know, tech, reading about tech constantly and in sort of the tech culture, it's like, oh, MBAs are worthless. You know, like what's what's the point of that? So I, I went to I went to business school very cynical and like, oh, I'm I am here just to get a job. Like this is all stupid and and I'm gonna you know all that sort of thing. And, and I remember being in class and reading, it's like, oh my god, this is amazing. The connection to tech just clicked for me immediately like oh this is so explanatory but also the, the larger level this idea of incentives and business models and all the different pieces matter again this is what i do on strategy what i do on strategy is if there is a single sort of article that leads to what i do it's it's that and so you know going forward talk about this in daily Edit this week i wrote a paper for that class where i read the article about Apple and the innovator's dilemma, like in why, why was that Apple was so successful despite the fact that in going into new markets, despite the fact that it seemed like they shouldn't be. And there I was trying to sort of like, uh, fit the two things together. Like I really believe in this direction thing and, and I, I, I followed Apple super closely. Like how can they sort of fit together? And a few years later, when, when Shachary sort of got started, as you know, I think we've talked about, you know, there was a lot of talk about disruption. In this case, low end disruption and Android is going to come along and the iOS is doomed. And I got a lot of traction that first year saying that's not true. The iPhone is going to be fine. And this, this model actually is sustainable and long run. And all we've talked again, we've talked mm. about this. Uh, a lot before. But this point, like I was just being hammered at this point by people that I generally would agree with because I was, you know, believed in disruption and stuff was saying, no, this is what the model says. It's going to happen. And oh, by the way, Professor Christian agrees with me and listing all the different interviews he'd given saying that he didn't think the iPhone was going to be successful. And finally, in my take, there's like, actually, I know the, like, it's wrong in this case. And why is it wrong? You know, and I talked about things like, Consumer being a little different than B2B and the user experience being valuable in certain contexts where they were different contexts. And you will link the article. You can go back and read it. We got into it. I uh, wrote about it another time. I think I kind of took it on about beyond disruption where I took the idea of zero marginal costs actually made it. Uh, a good idea to start at the top of the market instead of the bottom of the market, it, which, you know, it, it was, but in all cases, this was coming from a place of, I'm not out here to make, Professor Christian look like a dummy. It's like, no, this is the giant on whose shoulders I'm standing. And there's, you know, there's new stuff in the world. That's a way to think about it slightly differently. And, and, you know, in retrospect, like, yeah, the, the, the title, you were probably right. The title was a little bit aggressive. Like, what <laughs> Professor Christian got wrong, but you know, it was a testament to the respect and admiration that I held him and his work with that I would want to define myself in opposition to that because that's very much trading on what his reputation was and what it meant to me, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, to be clear, you, you said it. It was it was probably the title that I reacted to. The, I think over the course of the podcast, I'm going to try and tell a few personal anecdotes. To uh, We've talked a lot about uh his ideas. But I think folks might be interested in this human being for whom we're always talking about and people who took his class or have known him are always talking about. And 
uh, this first anecdote probably relates to what you just said and how he, how he, I, I think he would have reacted to your, to your work. So I, I, I lucked out and got into his class. It was very popular at HBS. And I, being Australian, probably a little bit irreverent. Also, I didn't really know the stature or the intellectual and reputational stature of this man. And the role I kind of played in HBS, <laughs> maybe not entirely dissimilar to the role I play on the podcast, was just trying to pull things apart to understand them. And I was no different in class, but I think because most other folks knew who he was and weren't Australian, they were uh, they were a lot more gentle. And we were talking about disruption, and it was in the topic of it was in the topic of BlackBerry, and uh, we were talking about it from the solution. And I can't remember the exact context of the conversation, but I do remember. Uh, it, it, it was Nokia and BlackBerry, and he'd written he'd written about these in the solution. And in the same way that you kind of suggested this didn't exactly work, uh, I kind of did the same thing in class, except I kept pushing and I kept pushing and I kept pushing. And this probably wasn't something that Professor Christensen was used to. And it culminated in this moment where the the I think he kind of like got a little bit agitated and. Uh, I was, I, I was pushing my case. I was like, this thing, this isn't real. This is correlative. Like you've talked about correlative versus causal. This is correlative or this would have explained what had happened. And the room got very quiet and he was pointing at me. He's like, you are wrong. And the only noise you could hear was the beeping of his diabetes monitor. And I'm like, oh dear, I've finally pushed it too far. But the funny thing was, after that class, he came up and he's like, I really appreciate the way that you're pushing and the way that you pull things apart. And everybody learns more. And one of the things that he always talked about in in the class was like, we have these theories and a lot of folks, whether they're scientists or ac- academics, they create these theories and they don't want to prove them wrong. They only want to, this theory explains everything. It's always right. And he's like, James, that's not the right way to do it. You've got to look for the anomalies. The interesting stuff happens. The way you improve the theory is by looking for the anomalies where it doesn't happen. And the way that you're pushing and the way that you're pushing, Ben, with that article, like that's the kind of thing he loved. And it was on the back of me kind of playing that role that he ended up towards the end of the class saying, you know, I think we've got along pretty well. I really appreciate the way that you you push, you agitate, you ask good questions, and you don't just accept things. You try and find the anomalies. Why don't you stick around next year and work with me? I have a budget for a, for a researcher. It's like, I think we'd find something fun to do together. I actually heard from uh, some of his former folks that that you know played the role that you did, but a few years on, that actually he did in fact read that article and kept it. Like and, and to his, you know, he wanted folks that that challenged his point of view, and and he did come around the iPhone. Like as we've talked about, he viewed the iPhone. The mistake that he viewed it at was he views it as understandably a phone, and it was a phone that was expensive. And had a lot of features, and you would think that Nokia would come in and and also build a similar phone because that's what uh, that's what you expect an incumbent to do is is they would rather make more money too. So why wouldn't they want to build a more expensive phone that competed? But the mistake was that Apple didn't make a phone. Apple made a computer mm-hmm. that had phone functions, and Nokia was not a computer company. They were not prepared 
or able to compete on that vector. And what happened was, is that given that it was a computer that leveraged technology to do something new, it then went up market and disrupted the PC. And so it was disruptive, but it was in, in sort of the opposite direction because it was a computer and not a phone. The, the funny thing about Clay, and he would always say this, is he's kind of a low-end guy. And for all the the extent to which he was he was viewed as uh, as a visionary in Silicon Valley, he was not much of a tech dude. And any time he'd come and talk to an audience or he'd speak to someone outside of his industry, he'd be like, you know, I don't have an opinion. The theory has an opinion, but there is an extent to which uh, you've got to have a solid understanding of the context uh, in the industry in which you operate. And he was not one that played with phones or he would often have his assistant help out with that kind of thing. And I think the trap he fell into here was, like you said, he just thought of it as a phone as as opposed to this was a computer that just happened to look like a phone. Well, it, it's actually an interesting analogy because one, I mean, to his credit, he, like, he came out later. He's like, I, I got this one wrong. And he articulated why he got it wrong. And, and to me, that's something I've absolutely tried to emulate. John Gruber has, has a saying that I, I, I love to rip off, which is basically the way to be right all the time is to say when you're wrong. Because, you know, no one is going to be right all the time about everything. But if you quickly, you know, take feedback and and get it right after you get it wrong, then now you are back to being right. Right. And the other thing that that I think I really try to do is when I when I get something wrong, I try to go back. What was my thought process? What was I thinking that I got this wrong? And usually something to do with confirmation bias. And that's something that absolutely would emulated from from Professor Christensen. Like he's like, oh, I thought about the phone the iPhone is being a phone and actually it was a computer. And it's like, yeah, the, one, not only is that correct, that's the mistake you made, but two, that actually through your learning process, that actually enhanced my learning process. And I'm someone that understood the, the technical details to a much greater extent than you did, right? Be, but there's so much value in that. The, the second part about that though is I think this was where you measure your life and correct me if I'm wrong. He tells the story about meeting with, with Andy Grove uh, of Intel. Mm. And Andy Grove he, he flew Professor Christensen out there, and he had uh, he was supposed to have a, a long presentation, and it got compressed to a few minutes. Like, look, we don't have time. Just tell us what we should do. And Professor Christensen refused. He was not going to tell Intel how to run their business. He was going to explain what disruption is and how it works, and he was going to talk about mini mills and steel, whether Intel wanted to hear about mini mills or steel or not. And and what he did was in, by resisting the pressure to talk about Intel. And instead talking about the theory, that made it click for Andy Grove in a way that, oh, I know what we should do for Intel because I have the context. I understand the business. Now I get the theory, and I'm the one that can put them together. I don't need Professor Christensen to be prescriptive. I need him to give me a framework, and I can fill in the details. And, and nor would you want him to be prescriptive because like, he's never going to know your business as well as you do. And th- that was the that was the basis of Clay's class. It was equipping students to go out and be effective general managers once they left the building. And the way to do that was to equip them with a whole series of theories. And so disruption was the one that he became the most well known for. But so many of the theories that we've talked about that he he taught me and countless other folks he talked about in the dilemma and then subsequently in the solution. He and he wasn't 
prideful about this must be my work. Instead, he'd be like, no, let's go out there and find all the best research on the, all the various things. And uh, that became the basis for like the class and part of the reason why it was so popular because you wouldn't just, you wouldn't, there's obviously value in going into a case and putting yourself in the shoes of a protagonist, but that is, it, it's so much more so rather than trying to figure out the thing for yourself or the decision-making criteria or how to think about it for yourself through doing hundreds of cases, you do one case, you get one theory and maybe it's culture. And like, for example, we've talked a bunch about Edgar Schein from MIT's work on culture and how it's the accumulation of decisions. You come across the decision the first time, nobody knows how to do it and then it works well enough and then you keep going and then eventually that's just the way we do things around here or on motivation. So many of these things and it's... it. In so much as anyone thinks that I'm intelligent talking to you on this podcast, I think you're the intelligent one. I'm just relying on Professor Christensen's work so, so often, just like, okay, all these theories help give me insight into how to think about the world. They give me a different framing on, on these problems. And it's like, oh, well, I understand enough of the context now and I pick up the theory. And part of the art is figuring out which theory is the right one to apply. But you pick up the right one and it's like, oh, I have have insight into this problem, whereas before I had none. I You sell yourself short in many respects, but in this particular case, because I, I think, and this is, you know, we, I, th- I think we've talked, I don't know if we've talked about on the podcast, but maybe offline about sort of the disruption complex, you know, like there's an entire industry around it in some respects where it does end up being like, oh, okay, we have this tremendous, like one of the wor- business world's most powerful hammers, but it, that handles a whole lot of nails. But mm-hmm. we're starting to find nails in places that aren't necessarily nails. <laughs> and I, I think that you have demonstrated, like Professor Christensen, a flexibility of thinking where, well, sometimes that's not quite right, but 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 it's close. And this is where this is where it should be, or this is where it is or isn't. And I, that's, again, to me, the... The great thing about disruption is not just the specificity of what it says about like how you handle it or do whatever. It's it's about incent. It's about motivations. It's about incentives. It's about how managers think. And if it, when you draw back into the essence of it and sort of the meta, the the meta ness of it, the truly sort of disruptive thinker ought never believe that disruption is a hard and fast rule set of rules that you follow right that that like it's like that's becoming the sort of managers that follow their their processes mm. and allocation decisions and get locked into a way of thinking and actually it, it, it to to avoid that requires a, a certain flexibility of mindset that again i i think professor demonstrate i think you demonstrate and it's just sort of an interesting sort of Meta point. Um, one other thing I wanted to to, to mention. You you were mentioning the different books. Is that whereas the inverse dilemma was? I mean, I think is just pretty. It's just an incredible, elegant insight. And whereas the innovator solution I talked about, where that was when I wrote about it, that's the one I sort of like took on more. Like like is that are there things here that are right or wrong? Mm. What's interesting is the innovator solution is also the book where 
Professor Christian talked about the conservation of attractive profits, mm-hmm. which is the single most important, or which I, he later renamed it the law of conservation of modularity. But it, it's actually the single most important theoretical underpinning for aggregation theory that, that obviously, you know, I wrote about and I make, you know, <laughs> nothing demonstrates the fact that I pretended to, to, to be taking out Professor Christian, but actually I was a, a big fanboy by the fact that I blatantly just copied his naming scheme in this particular case. But, but it goes to show that there was so much there was so much in here there was so much thinking that there was nothing to be proven wrong here there was things to apply in different ways and and to have generated such a wealth of ideas that one that no one really thought about or paid attention to when it was published in you know 2001 or whatever that book came out to my mind, is one of the most powerful predictors of what actually happened over the following ten years. Is just tremendous. Yeah, and, and and I mean, he 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 would want you to. He, he it's it, it, there. There was never published this and there. This therefore, this is right, and it cannot be challenged. It's just like any scientific theory. It's going to last for a while, but the world is changing. Things like the internet come along and upend things. Uh, but more than that, like find the anomalies, find the places where it's not right, build on it. Like that's the whole basis of the scientific method and keep going. And it, it was, and this was a hallmark of the individual himself. He was, it was frightening to be around him in terms of his intellectual capacity. And at the same time, it was so easy because A, he cared so much about people and he wanted to put you at ease. But B, there was a genuine humility, which I find is very rare that a great intellectual capacity goes alongside with humility. But one of the things he always said, like, and he'd, he'd, he'd tell us, he'd be like, look, you guys are all very smart. and But the model that you have is you have to learn from someone smarter than you. You have to be like, I, I'm the professor, I stand up the front and I teach you, but you're going to come out of HBS and like, it's going to be the case that you're not always going to find folks that are super smart, like in this room. But if, if you go out there and you be arrogant about things, you're going to find that your learning opportunities are going to be extremely limited. If you take a degree of humility in, in your ideas and your capabilities, you will find that the world is your teacher because everyone has something for you to learn. And that extended to his approach to how he how he treated people, but it also extended in terms of his ideas. It's like, yes, there's almost so Certainly, there are going to be anomalies. Find the things that are wrong. Help me improve this because I know I haven't got it right. So I I'd, I would love to hear more about because I think that what you just said about the sort of smarter people and being humble and like that is that is a part of the opening of of how you measure your life. Mm. And you know, one obviously everybody should read. How you measure your life. Two, they should all buy it and make sure that you get royalties. <laughs> no, but, but in all seriousness, two, like we've talked a little bit. I'd love to hear more uh, just about the book in general. I think it is interesting. But three, I would love to hear, and I don't think we've ever talked about this even between the two of us. I'd love to hear more of what it was like in that year, like actually like working with with him. Like, wh- what was he like as a person? What was the process like? Like, what what you know, you have an insight that almost no one else has, you know, particularly on this occasion, if not now, then when? Yeah, I, I, it's a good point. Uh, so, so let me start off, let me start off 
with with the book. I mean, and it's hard to talk about the book without talking about the class. And so the class is you come you come in and it's a case and it's a theory every every class and you use the theory to discuss the case, which is quite unusual for HBS. Normally you just dive into the case. And so we talked about things as far afield as the motivation and culture and disruption, like how to form a culture in an organization, how to motivate people. Where where it kind of took a turn that I wasn't expecting and it really started to deeply affect me was the last the last class. So during the course of the semester when I was taking his class, he was actually diagnosed with cancer and no one was really sure how he was going to do. And the last class was quite well known that this was particularly special. I mean, I feel like many last classes with professors are special. They go off, they give you wisdom. But this one, this one was particularly regarded as poignant. And it was, it was magnified tremendously by the fact that we weren't really sure whether this was going to be the last time that he ever taught it. The way he teaches it is kind of similar to the way that all the other classes have been taught, except instead of having a case study provided to us uh, written, the case study is us. And so he takes all the theories that we've studied over the course of the year and he'd write them up on the board in a, in a matrix. And then he'd write three questions beside them. How can I find happiness in my relationships? How can I find happiness in my career? And how can I stay out of jail? And that last question is maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but Clay was at HBS with Jeff Skilling of Enron fame, and apparently Skilling, when he was going through the MBA program, was a really good guy, but something sent him off the tracks, and Enron happened. And so the notion of using these theories to dive into these questions like, okay, if this is the way that motivation works uh, and you can help it help people at work find things that they like doing, enjoy doing, be motivated doing, you can actually take that theory and turn it around and, and use it for yourself. Or or the same with culture. It's like, this is the way culture in an organization forms. It works the same way in a family. And if you want to be thoughtful and use it in that way, then you can. And you, you mentioned earlier, like Clay's approach to finding good, strong causal theories and picking them up and applying them in different regards. And like, this was no different. And it it just opened my eyes up so much, just like it did um, many of the other people that took the class. And you're getting towards the end of business school and you're thinking about what to do next. And I found myself leaning on that class more and more in terms of thinking about how to make the decision. And around the same time, uh, a number of professors were picked to come and give commencement style speeches to the graduating class and Clay was picked and it had a this this impact went wider. And then the, the person who eventually became the third co-author on the book, Karen Dillon, heard about this. She was an editor at the Harvard Business Review at the time. She asked Clay if he wouldn't mind penning something and that turned into the article and all this is happening. I graduate. I'm coming back to work with Professor Christensen. Two weeks after I start working, he has a stroke that's related to the cancer medication, they thought, and it affected his ability to speak. And it took him a couple of, a couple of months to recover. But when he did, he came back. And I was meant to be working on a marketing-related topic, like something much more straight down the line business. But this this whole event and the fact that th- this class had been rattling around in my brain. And I, I went to him and he said, you know, Professor Christensen, I think perhaps 
this deserves a deeper treatment. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And he, he agreed with me. And it was at that point that we decided to to pivot, so to speak, what I was working on from the uh, the, the class, uh, from, from working on the marketing stuff to to bringing this last class to life in a way that would be readily accessible for everyone from an MBA student through to hopefully my mum would be able to pick it up, read it, and understand it. I didn't realize that you were the spur for the book. That's that's awesome. Well, I I, I mean, I, it, no, I mean, he, he was the spur. It was his, it was right, his class, whatever. of course. But, but the idea, like, let's actually make this into a book. Uh, that's that's super cool. I, it's it's always hard to tell with him because he was so humble and he was so encouraging of people. Like, and it, it may have been an inception sort of thing. Yes, <laughs> and, and and I've often thought about that. It's just the kind of the kind of person that he was. But away away we went and we structured it up. And he was he was still teaching at the time and doing research, and so it became my project, like to like write a book proposal and like figure out how we might structure this because it's one thing to give people a theory and then uh, and then give them a, a case on it in the class, but like the extent to which we could give uh, because the, the last class was structured with all the theories and then the three questions, and no one was going to read a book and go the whole way through and read all the theories and then apply it to a conversation about. Um, life. So, we had to figure out an interesting way of engaging people on it. And it, it was that we got a first draft out and like I'd, I'd often go into the room and he'd sometimes he'd take sections of the book. Uh, sometimes I would. And every week I'd be in there numerous times and I'd record all the conversations because one of the things that was really important was getting it. If I was doing some of the writing, it was making sure that it was in his voice. And so I became this expert. I'd, I'd, I'd sit in there and I'd have all my questions and he'd patiently answer and we'd talk about it and talk about how to structure it and then I'd end up that they gave me this little shoe closet in the the place where all the professors worked at HBS and I discovered that writing in a dark room is not really conducive to good creative writing I ended up in coffee shops dotted all over Cambridge with headphones in not listening to music but listening to clay talking to try and master the art of like okay this is how to this is how to write my section this is how to do this part in in a way that sounds consistent in a way that sounds like him by the way, I I, I just I, I just do have to add be, beyond just to double down on you not selling yourself sh- short. Professor Christensen did say you are one of the smartest of the thousands of students that he has known at HPS over the last two decades. So um, just 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 had 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 to get that out there. But you're kind, and so is he. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a it was a phenomenal process. Just. Uh, uh, I mean, it's one thing getting to to be in the class, and that was phenomenal. But it's another thing entirely taking these theories and working with someone who was the creator of one of them. And it, it's again to be to absorb the knowledge is one thing, but to absorb it in a way where that you can then have to go and explain it to someone who may not be in the business world. It forces you to understand it, and doing that with him. Uh, I, I would say that he's done more to change the way that I think than perhaps, perhaps my parents. It's just the extent to which his thinking got imbued in my head. And I have to say, after 180 podcasts of doing this with you, you're starting to get up there as well. Just, it just in terms of a parallel that's easy to describe, it's like an intellectual journey that is similar to the one that you and I have been on, where you go off and you discover new things or you write about it in a different way. 
And part of my motivation for doing it was was probably twofold. One, I'd come out of consulting and I'd learned an awful lot and I'd love my colleagues, but I I looked around and I realized that the path that it was on, I wasn't really convinced always traveling, never being around, never like always being on the road, not not being able to join a swim squad or see your friends on a regular basis or potentially even have a relationship or see your family. I, I realized that wasn't right and I had to figure out something. And it was great and it was like intellectually stimulating, but it didn't feel like what I was meant to be doing. So there, there was that component of like, I know that I'm not been doing the right thing and maybe this is an opportunity for me to spend 18 months working through some of these problems and using the theories to further figure it out. And I get self-conscious sometimes being associated with the book because it's like, oh, I've got all the answers. But really, I, I, I empathize more with the reader. It's like, what have we got here that can help me solve the problem? And I guess the other part of it was on the personal side because I, w- I wasn't out at business school. And again, there was this gnawing sense of I need to work this out and maybe this is a good opportunity to do so. And I think it did. It made me reflect a lot on what matters in life. And you, like probably a lot of folks going into business school, I was, it's all about, you know, going out there and conquering the world. And I think one of the things that Clay made me realize was that, yeah, professional success is great, but actually the thing that's going to make you happy or not more so than anything else is what happens on the personal side of your life. And folks have a tendency to, firewall these things or segment or silo or (laughs) in Clay's language, modularize them. And one of the incredible things I think about Professor Christensen's mind was it was all very integrated. In fact, it was early on in one of those classes, it was almost shocking to me. He started talking about religion and I, I looked around and I was like, hang on, we're at Harvard Business School. This isn't the divinity school. This is not an okay topic. And I look back with almost a little bit of shame around like the extent to which I reacted like that because he he didn't view the world through, oh, this is my religious and this is my home life and this is my work life. It's like, it's, it's all one. Like all these things affect each other. If one, if my home life's not going well, that's going to bleed into my, my professional life. Or if my professional life's not going well, it's going to bleed into my home life. But intellectually, it was the same thing. He viewed them all through the same lens. It was, it was all a quest for truth. And there are many paths to get there. And some of it might be through religion and some of it might be through academic research and some of it might be through other mechanisms. And I I, I never, I, I won't lie, I never came around about the religion side of things, but the meta point about this many paths to the truth and not being fixated around my way is the right way and there's no other way and I, and and like trying to modularize things and and or firewall them and keep them separate i've very much come to be a big believer in that yeah and, and the, i mean the evidence is is the, in the book he says right at the beginning that you know religion is an important part of the way i approach this mm. and i'm co-writing with james allworth who is an atheist right like because he was he was pretty upfront about that that fact that and I think you, you, what you just said is is so powerful that the point is the point is to achieve the integration because that's the only way you can actually think about this 
this stuff from a sort of big picture perspective. And, you know, it really just sort of clicked for me when you were just talking this, you know, we write about it and talk about it. You need the integration of like the business model and the product and the culture and all the different pieces mm-hmm. need to, and the the consumer use case and all, all those bits, the, the most powerful and successful companies are the ones that have all the different pieces aligned and all integrated. And it, it's a, it's a great manifestation of the point that, that, that was the point of the book in the class, which is that exact same sort of thinking can and should be applied to the way you live your life, the way you think about things. And and Fresher Christensen was very religious, which meant that had to tie into his his, his professional career. And, and and for different people, it'll be different things and different drivers and motivations, but whatever it is that matters to you, it needs to all connect and work together. And if you are going to segment and separate those things in your in your head, well, how do companies fare when they do when they segment and mm. separate all those different bits and pieces and they're working at cross purposes, right? You right. a company have a strategy tax and I can have a strategy tax. It's totally true. I mean, it, it, it also relates to another thing that we talked about and the language I think we used a few episodes ago was a principal stack and he was just a very principal person. And he, he tells this story and I'm probably going to butcher it, but he was working at a consulting firm at the time and he's committed to like committed to doing things with his family. And uh, they asked him to come in on a Saturday and he turned to his manager. He's like, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. I've promised my wife that I'd spend Saturday with her and my kids. And the manager blows his blows his top. It's like, this is, you know, this is one of the best consulting firms. Like we work here on Saturday. It's like, he's like, I'm sorry. I, I guess if you need me to work here on Saturday, this isn't the place for me. And the manager storms off. And then he comes back a little bit later and he's like, okay, we moved the meeting from Saturday to Sunday. And Professor Christensen's like, oh dear. It's like, look, I, I, I made a commitment to God that on Sunday that I would spend the day praying and with him. And the manager's just like incredulous. It's like, well, I, I mean, and Clay had this incredible way of telling the stories. Like, I don't know about your God, but my God, like, if you need to go and do some work, he'll un- you pray to him and he'll understand. And, and it's like, yeah, that's not, that's not quite the way that it, it, that, that the relationship I have with, with, with God. And it's like, manager's like, ah, oh, storms off. And he's like, okay, we moved the meeting to Monday. Do you happen to work on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was just this very integrated principal person and you know and it's easy, it's easy to say like that's fine for clay like clay's brilliant but yeah. I, th- what is what i think is worth considering in, in that story is to what extent was clay being brilliant such that his manager would bend over backwards for him deeply connected to the fact he was integrated Right. Yes. And, and, and that that the brilliance could come forth such that the manager would accommodate him because what he had to contribute was so great. And, and, and you know, it's so easy to think about trade offs in a static sense where if I don't do this, I'm not going to do that. But sometimes it is sometimes a trade off unleashes a dynamism in, in mm. that because of this thing, because I followed my principal stack and I followed priority one that actually made it better and more likely that I could 
achieve number two or number three, even though it didn't seem so at the time the initial decision was made. And to be clear, this doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes there are actual real trade-offs, and you're choosing one or the other, and you have to deal with the consequences such that they are. But it's not always that way. Sometimes, sometimes you unlock something by doing what you should do that actually figures out a way around to do to do something else. Yeah. We know him so much through his work and we talk about him so much through his work. And it's just this other, this other side of him that I know and that I felt. And it was like, it came from a place of love. Um, and I mean, I mentioned a little bit earlier, like I hadn't come out, but I, I figured that out after we finished the book and I went through the process of telling all the people most important to me. And he's undoubtedly one of them. And, I won't lie, like any anyone who's religious, like there was a sense of trepidation before telling them. And he's of a previous generation. And I remember walking into his office and I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. Um, he's deeply religious, different generation. And it's like, Clay, I, I have something to tell you. And it's a little bit difficult. It's like, I'm gay. And I, he pauses for a second and he stands up and he starts crying and he's like, I love you, man. And he comes over and he just gives me a big hug. And we, we talk about this man in the, the light of his incredible intellectual work. But many of the people who are his student or who got the opportunity to work with him saw this other deeply integrated human being who was as committed to loving and caring for individuals as he was committed to searching for the truth. And yeah, when you asked me at the start of the episode, how am I doing? And I said, it's been a week. It's like it, uh, human beings like that are few and far between that, that they're like this, this integrated person who's like brilliant on so many levels, who's, who teaches people, who cares about people, who cares about their well-being, who wants to see them happy and well. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, I, can't quite believe he's gone and yeah i i like i'm sure a number of people are really going to miss him what, what's so powerful about that story is I, I think it it really drove home the point that we were sort of just talking about where you think about the religious and and you know fresh christian was a mormon and the, the mormon church and and around issues of sort of homosexuality, whether it be in California or otherwise, the position is sort of um, well-known when it comes to like marriage and things along those lines. And, and, and so you think about it and you think, well, you know, if he's such a principled Christian or a principled Mormon that he's going to not work on sun, work on Sunday and uh, you know, surely, surely there's no way this conversation can go well because you know, such, such that it is. But if you actually, think through it and think about it to the point of being integrated and this idea of like a principal stack and knowing what, what actually matters. Like he, you know, <laughs> I, I was raised in the church. So I, I know, I know the, the sort of what, what would people say it should be done, right? You know, you don't, you know, <laughs> love, love the person, you know, what the, separate the person from, from, you know, the, 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 the actions or et cetera, et cetera. And then no one, no one actually lives that way. It seems, you know what I mean? It's like, 
no, actually, everyone just has rules and they want to follow the rules. And rules are sort of incompatible with unconditional love. Like there's just no, they're, they're, those are fundamentally at odds. Mm. And the principle stack that you is manifested is that nothing matters more than the rules. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure he had ideas or thoughts about different things from religious context. And he loved you and, and and that is what mattered most that's what he said mattered most and in his actions it's what actually manifested as mattering most and there's something so powerful about that you, you know it's so like necessary in in today's sort of environment like we 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 start in so many places like you talked about when you were in his class and you brought up religion your skin kind of crawled it's like oh i can't believe we're, we're going here and there's probably people listening to this conversation right now that are feeling the exact same way they're feeling that skin crawling sensation like i can't believe we're sort of dabbling around the edges <laughs> of what we are dabbling around but the, the reality is 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 there is there is a way through. If we actually had our priorities in order mm. where we're actually going to view people who believe things different than us first and foremost, as a person love them and appreciate them on that level, then one, we can connect regardless Two, we may be able to find a way through our differences or yeah. three, we can agree to disagree in a way that actually lets us live together in a productive and happy way without feeling like everything is at stake. And and this is not a criticism of any one particular person or way of thinking because it's endemic to our society today. This this sort of tribalism of what what we, what we believe matters more than anything. And, and it doesn't. It doesn't need to be that way. It's so true. I, before I undertook that project with him and with Karen, the word compromise had always been – I mean, I was a bit of an ideological warrior on lots of fronts, and the word compromise was always a dirty word. And it wasn't until I spent a lot of time with someone who – and I think it was a prerequisite for me to get there that I deeply respected the person in the first place. But it wasn't until I spent a lot of time with someone who just came at the world from a totally different approach that I – like, it, it was how I learned humility in a way it's like oh i just come at like the ideological warrior like that's a that's an implicit belief that you've got it all figured out and you've got it right and that everyone else has it wrong and uh, this man who is brilliant and who is so caring and has changed me and done so much for me comes at the world from a totally different point of view maybe I've got it wrong. And that was also reflected in the contents of the book. Like, I think if it had been a whole bunch of atheists or a whole bunch of Mormons or a whole bunch of anyone just writing that book, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been the same book. It wouldn't have been as good as taking a whole bunch of diverse viewpoints uh, of people who came together around with the concept of respect from very different viewpoints, but mutual respect. And it's like, we're going to drive towards the truth. And as a result of that diversity and as a result of that respect, I feel like we got to a better place. Yeah, it, it, it's this the power of the clarity of thinking and, and and being able to understand like your principle stack, like like what is most important to you, what's second most important. And, and what you realize is that compromise is not about betraying that principle. It's saying, well, oh, wait, this principle and this principle mm. I can't change on. This one – 
actually, we have an alignment here. Your fourth principle is the same as my second principle. Let's, there's, there's some work we can do there. We're not going to violate my first principle or your top three principles because those are inviolate. But things underneath it, well, we, actually, we might be able to, to shift some things around. And you can't actually get to that spot if you haven't put the, 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 the level of, of, of thought and, and clarity and structure into your thinking such that you know what, like, I'm sure, we hear the story of Professor Christian wanting to spend time with his family or it not wanting to, deciding to, right? <laughs> it wasn't a want. It was a decision. Deciding to spend time with his family, deciding to not play basketball in the championship game because it was on a Sunday. Like we hear about that. What we don't hear about, but which you just articulated very powerfully, is the things that he was willing to compromise on right he was will, he was a devout mormon who was not just will was willing to write a book with a devout atheist about how you should live your life why because his desire and belief in the sort of principles that could be communicated that yes he knew where they came from for him but there was a universality that that could not only overcome that difference of background, but could actually be enhanced by embracing mm. that difference of background and thus be useful and applicable to that many more people. Like it, 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 it requires, again, so much clarity, so much confidence in who you are as a person to know what you're defined by and what you're not defined mm. by, what you can compromise on and what you won't compromise on. It, it's, it's, it's truly admirable. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I think, I guess, if that's the thing that I want listeners to take away, it's that he was, I, I have this vision of an academic and what, what they should be. And I'm pretty close to what that is, is, is what, what Clay was. He was ruthless in a search for the truth. And when I say ruthless, he'd tear up his own ideas if they weren't any good, like find the anomalies, help drive to causality like want to make we want to understand but it was coupled with a deep caring for everyone around him and uh, he moved mountains for you and i, I at, at, in the acknowledgments of the book there was this i i i stole from uh johann wolfgang von goth like the quote treat people as if they were what they ought to be and you help them to become what they are capable of being and no person in in my adult life is that more true of than clay and I, I know it wasn't just for me i know it was for generations of students and other people in his life and incredibly grateful and i'm really gonna miss him yeah i mean thanks to you thanks to you for articulating that thanks to professor christensen for being uh an inspiration a um uh, someone who has been essential to whatever success I've had, and I'm sorry I could never have met him the way you did, but I'm glad that I was able to have met you in part because of him, and yeah. feel very fortunate in that regard. Yeah, me too. Very good. Thanks for chatting about this. Uh, there's no one else I would have rather talk to. Yeah. yeah, me too. All right, I'll talk to you later. Sounds good, mate. See you. All right, bye-bye.